Hi there. We are still reeling from the effects of the attack on the U.S. Capitol, including the implications for the media sphere and how America seems even more divided and also divided by an ecosystem in which people are not consuming the same types of information. There is no longer an objective reality or a notion of one. And so we recorded this back in December, but it is very much of top of mind right now. So we talked with Dr. Mohsen Mosley, who is at the MIT Sloan School of Management about his research along with David Rand and Gordon Pennycook about the psychology of why people share fake news. And we thought this was an incredibly fascinating discussion to have because we have talked a lot about the technology, bots, information networks, the sharing of that information as a technological mechanism, but we've not talked a lot about the end user and why people feel motivated or what is the human behavior behind that. And so we wanted to give Professor Mosley an opportunity to discuss this research and the findings are fascinating and I can't think of anything that is more present right now as we come to grips with the implications for how Americans consume media and what that does for real world interactions. So without further ado, we will get into it with Professor Mosley. Professor Mosley, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we are interested in this working paper. I think, um, and Ashley can chime in with her thoughts. It was interesting to me because it was a new lens to understand the issue, this idea of the cognitive science behind why people share misinformation. We have talked with a lot of experts from the technical side and even from the disinformation side, like why threat actors want to do it. But I think this is just, I mean, this is getting down to the brass tacks, which is the human end user. Um, but I think before we get there, uh, let's take a little bit of time to understand your journey. So very interesting background. You've got a PhD in engineering. You did postdoc work at Yale in the Department of Psychology. Very interested to understand how those two worlds came to intersect. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I received my PhD in systems engineering with a minor in data science. Uh, but I, the main thesis for my PhD was to understand how connectivity between different components in a system affect collective behavior. And I was mainly focusing on technical systems like satellite, uh, mm. like the network of satellite systems and stuff like networks of, I don't know, autonomous grid and things like that. But when I was working on this topic, it happened to me that I could also apply similar analogy to a more complicated system that is human society, in particular, social media and social networks. And that was the time after, after receiving my PhD, I was very lucky to receive an offer from Yale University Department of Psychology, joining a big uh, project on social media to study how the uh, structural social network affect, as affect individual decisions as well as collective decisions, particularly in the context of election. So in that role, it was very exciting because on one, on one hand, in the, in the very beginning, it was kind of like challenging because I was speaking completely different language from the other colleagues in psychology. But after a while, 
it was so much fun in terms of like leveraging my technical background and scaling things that can help addressing social science questions at large scale. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Such a mix of disciplines, and you know, now you're at the MIT Sloan School of Management. So, you know, there's a kind of a business school element, and then there's the psychology and the and then the technology. I think that's that is great. You know, I think academia gets a, a rough ride for specialization and niches, but I think if you bring that specialization together, you know, you can achieve some pretty interesting research projects. So good on good on Yale for that. Um, okay, so you've also worked, I promise we're going to get into the paper, but you've published a lot on user psychology and digital communications. I am interested to understand how are these studies conducted? You know, I think people think psychological experiments as like the Stanford prison experiment or surveys or interviews. And but I think the added element of computers makes it a little bit trickier. Um, so just curious to understand what that lab setting looks like or what those studies are structured like? Sure. So I guess what I was, what I found very interesting, like bringing my technical engineering background to, the, to this whole world of studying human behavior and social media was that the common practice in psychology and many like other social sciences in, in terms of like a study online behavior is one, like you mentioned, online or lab experiments where you simulate the environment of social media and you study individual decisions. This is great, but it also needs another step. That is how these findings generalize to actual social media hmm. platforms in terms of like ecological validity. So my research and the methodologies that I use help me to run experiments directly on social media platforms on, so, on real social media users. So oh, a couple of different, different things that it adds. One is, of course, ecological validity because the simulated environment may not be exact the same as the uh, field environment on social media. Another one is the type of user you're studying. So for example, in the context of misinformation, many people are like, far right people who may, uh, share misinformation may not opt in or, or may not be accessible to reach through like survey experiments through either like online or lab experiments. Whereas running these studies on field experiments, you can reach out to these people who share misinformation. So I would say this kind of infrastructure helps to bring studies and findings from lab experiments to a large scale and we're in real-world setting. Fascinating. All right. Okay. So, good background. Now let's let's get into this uh, this particular working paper. Yeah, like like George was introducing when he first joined. This is a conversation I feel like we've been having um, outside, just talking to people about what what's that missing component? Where is the the critical reasoning when it comes to the spread of mis or disinformation? And I assume that the average American probably thinks that spreading mis or disinformation is a symptom of political polarization. So can you distill some of the findings from your paper or, or to be more blunt, why do people share fake news or misleading posts on social media? Sure, so I guess that we can think about two broad accounts of why people share misinformation. 
in particular as it relates to critical thinking. One is like more kind of like aligned with what you mentioned. That is, if people use more critical thinking, they, they kind of like use their motivated reasoning to share content that aligns with their ideology, even if it's not true. But what we have been working on and the findings from our research in, together with my colleagues at MIT kind of like challenges this account. That is, people share misinformation mainly because they don't simply pay attention to the accuracy of the content. So maybe just give you an example of one of these studies. So in my recent study, we collected the cognitive reflection of around 2,000 Twitter users. That is, to measure the extent to which they rely on their analytical thinking versus intuitive gut responses. And then see how that relates to their actual behavior on Twitter uh, in terms of the quality of content they share. What I found is that I found that there is a positive and significant relationship between the extent to which people rely on their analytical thinking and the quality of content they share on the platform as rated by professional fact checkers. And these results is robust controlling for various demographic factors, including age, education, and particularly political partisanship, which kind of like challenges the common understanding mm -hmm. like you mentioned in terms of like motivated reasoning as it relates to sharing misinformation. Yeah, I think what I found so fascinating about the study is that it was both counterintuitive and intuitive at the same time. I think counterintuitive because it countered this particular narrative that there's a lot of motivated reasoning behind it. But also if you if you back into the data and you just take a time to look at it like, oh yes, the contextual landscape of social media, like they see that something has more likes or more shares, like it's really the microcosm of that world completely changes human behavior. And I think that's like, oh, well that, yes, that makes sense to me. But I just, I, I'm not quite sure if that's a question, but I think if you could just speak a little bit more about like, what do you think is the co context clues or how people like interface, whether it's on a phone or on a desktop, you know, with these social media environments? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, I, I agree with you. Like, I guess like one of the main things, particularly about social media is that it's kind of like designed to distract our attention to these kind of like social factors, like how many likes my post will get, what kind of comments people will make. And I'm gonna like share this piece of like misinformation. I mean, I don't pay attention to the accuracy of the mm -hmm. content I'm sharing. I'm gonna like maybe use that in order to signal to my friends. This is like a fun content I'm gonna share, like I will receive more likes. I don't pay attention to like what exactly it says, but it's fun to share with my friends or kind of like, you know, giving like some signals or like you mentioned, collecting more likes. I think like social media by design kind of like distracts us from the concept of accuracy and shifting our accuracy to other factors like these kind of like social factors. Yeah, I, I recall not just 2016, but in the immediate aftermath, you know, I have a lot of friends send me tweets or they would, they would either retweet it or they would just send the tweet to me directly. And um, I think so much of the exercise was just the outrage at something, you know, like, can you believe that the other side believes this or something? And I, and I, and at the time we were very engaged in research around bot manipulation of content and stuff. And, you know, I, I would have to give them pause and 
say like you know there's a pretty high degree of probability that that is either a fake post or it's also like a bot just designed to rile you and you know and motivate you to do something and i think that was very sobering for them but then i would go on twitter and i could feel that same bilious rage come up you know i can feel i can i can say it outside of social and then i go on social and it's like instant tunnel vision and i'm affected by the same features yeah i i would say i share the same experience they there were there were circumstances that are like share some content oh this is so much fun i'm gonna like share with my friends and just like after a few minutes like let me double check but it's actually true and it's like oh right. my god it's like i'm just studying like misinformation but it's just like you know did the same thing that i wasn't supposed to do and as my the results of my studies suggest so i totally understand that i see like this is like a design factor uh kind of like inherited into the social media platforms and design yes yes and i think um you know there's some startling facts in here that you know if people were given like a pause to consider the accuracy of something you know like basically raising it to the level of conscious awareness you know their sharing of misinformation you know dropped almost by 50 percent. so and i know that twitter tried to do this during the election you know they wouldn't let you retweet something without they would just give you a little nudge and say like did you read this are you sure you want to share i've i've personally found that to be effective but i'm curious also if you could share with our listeners how do you feel about the prospects for for fighting misinformation or at least stemming its flow and and what is the psychological research shown to be effective sure i think like all these interventions you just mentioned are very very uh challenging and tricky because you know you may like like run an intervention to make people like slow down the process but you may slow down the both true and false content mm, another point. like example of which is what Twitter did back in October with regards to the misinformation for 20, uh, like recent 2020 election in the US. So they just like basically remove retweet and just for whatever content you want to retweet, you have to quote and retweet. Mm -hmm. That is, you couldn't like click just on the retweet button. You have to put a comment before retweet. And, you know, you, you would say like, okay, that would help a lot because, you know, people may think or like comment on it. But what Twitter found that it's not like that effective as what we would think because many people just put like one word, just say whatever they wanted. And then like <laughs> some random characters and it slowed down the process, but it's, it slowed down everything to the same extent. So I would say all of these kind of uh, intervention are very challenging. But what we found useful and effective in our research is aligned with what I just talked about in terms of like observational studies. So in the observational study that I just talked to you about, told you about, we show that you know, lack of careful thinking could lead to share misinformation. So that suggests if you make people think about the concept of accuracy that help them to be more discerning, in their subsequent sharing. So that's like another project that we did. We messaged more than 5,000 Twitter users. We asked them to rate the accuracy of a sim single non-political item. So make the concept of accuracy top of mind for them. When they go back to their newsfeed, they think about accuracy before they make the sharing decision. We show that, for instance, in this case, 
within 24 hours after receiving the message, people were more discerning in that they shared less number of links from hyperpartisan low quality content and more links from high quality uh, mainstream news out there. Mm, so I think like, the, yeah, so the effect, I guess, like here is kind of like shifting people's attention to social factors into the accuracy of the content rather than like slowing down everything that people make sure on social media. So I guess like one of the key factors that we found in our studies is priming on concept of accuracy, making concept of accuracy top of mind for the people. So when they go back to their newsfeed, they think about accuracy before they make the sharing decision. That's, that's interesting. So bringing the concept of accuracy, is it bringing it inside of the platform in the environment that they're used to engaging with or to encourage them to not reshare misinformation or taking them outside and then when they come into the platform, it's still top of mind for them? I guess, well, so the way that we implemented this was like, because at the time we weren't like collaborating with the, with the platform. So we've just implemented a proof of concept with like different users sending these messages. But this is something that simply social media platform can implement at large scale. Imagine that like next time you're on Twitter, you know, you just receive a message like, hey, how accurate do you think this content is? So like, okay, it's kind of like, makes the concept of accuracy top of mind for you. So I guess these kind of interventions, like similar to the ads you would receive, now instead of like an ad, like promoting a product, you will say something that promoting kind of like the concept of accuracy. So it's like, okay, it's kind of like top of your mind next time you're sharing something. Okay, is this accurate or not? Rather than like thinking about how many likes your most, my post will get or like comments people will make on the post that I'm gonna share. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, this is obviously a working paper and the, the research is sort of like right here at the edge. Has, well, two questions. Is there, are there any plans to study kind of the long-term behavior change? Like how, you said it was like 24 hours later you could measure that, but like how long is that going to last? Because, you know, we said earlier that we are, we we who talk about this are just as susceptible to the to the attention model. Um or I guess conversely, have you seen any studies that are similar in trying to measure changes to long-term behavior that, that might influence that line of inquiry? Sure, I guess like that's actually the next step of this research. So of course you, will, you, will, you may think about like treating the same person over and over like in, every 24 hour, which may like happen to be, you know, at the, at the end of the day, will result into like banner blindness. People just like, you know, ignore right. the yeah. message. But the next step of this project that we are thinking uh, about is just how to target people on the network. That is if, uh, you know, like today I'm gonna, you, you may receive this message, but tomorrow your friend may receive such message so that you're exposed to less misinformation. Kind of like leveraging the structure of the network to uh, like, you know, to let to leverage the structure of the network in order to like do the optimized targeting for these kind of interventions. That is like, okay, who I'm should should I uh, like treat on the network? If I'm like treating someone inter uh, treating someone with large number of followers who share misinformation, if I treat that person, that decreases all of the followers and downstreams from uh, the, the mm. chances of. Being exposed. Yeah, For sure. Cool. 
that's really interesting. Um, I know we're we're talking about these interventions in the context of social media, but we know that there's also false claims being made in other mediums. So are there broader implications for how we consume or interface with other communications like broadcast news, local news? Yeah, I mean, like that one thing, like the accuracy nudges could be one. But another thing that is like how to promote fact-checking. Mm -hmm. That is like, you know, you can think about fact-checking as a good, for instance, you know, or like kind of like for social behavior. So how you can promote this kind of behavior uh, among people. So many of the content that are, I mean, you can still see many false claims to be spread on social mm -hmm. media on other medium. Many of these have been found to be false on fact-checking websites like a Snopes, Quality Fact, and things like that. So I guess another direction of this research that I'm interested in is how to promote either like self-fact-checking. So next time I'm gonna share something, if next time I'm listening to something that's kind of like sounds suspicious, whatever, What's the, what, how we can promote the probability of self-fact-checking. Another one is when I see someone else talking about something that sounds not very correct, how I'm willing to provide fact-checking to that person. So it's kind of like providing fact-checks to others, which, which kind of like, again, could be like in the context of like some kind of like for social behavior. So you know, it's also very challenging and it's also very important that how you're gonna like fact check other people because you know people may be defend uh, like defensive or like mm -hmm. you know uh, because you know when I'm sharing some something I don't feel well that someone else says like you're wrong and things like that. So just how to promote this kind of like fact checking between people in a way that people do not feel uh, offended, for instance. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, f first of all, it's a, a funny irony that the pro-social behavior is just a, a term. But um, yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up because I think, you know, everything from celebrities getting kind of duped into sharing misinformation and, you know, they're kind of a super spreader and then they have to come back. And usually part of the apology is talking about the lesson that they've learned in checking sources and stuff like that. So there's something there, but yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. That's, that's an interesting um, conundrum. I think we've talked with other misinformation experts here about uh, school age curricula, you know, the, the countries that have been fighting disinformation for a long time, you know, they have very robust curricula starting in kindergarten, just, basically teaching kids to question with these critical thought processes. And I think we took it for granted in the U.S. that that was innate, that we didn't need to teach it, you know, because we're an independent democracy. But I think this has really highlighted that that difference. That's interesting. I think, I, I don't know if if you could reach the people who are already sharing it, but maybe if we started thinking about highlighting accuracy as a pro-social thing on Sesame Street, from from there on up, we could start sort of inoculating younger generations. Yeah, I mean, like, of course, like another thing that you just mentioned could be education, like how to promote this kind of critical thinking among in like early age or even like right now, I know 
like places like University of Washington, there is like undergraduate courses teaching students mm -hmm. how to spot false news and misinformation or low quality content. Like what, what's the way to like spot this kind of information? How to help like students to share higher quality content or avoid like me, uh, sharing misinformation, things like that. So I think like maybe like in broader context, we can think about like edu kind of like education in the early ages that, is, that are informed by the results of the studies to help people to be more discerning, even both in like when they are on social media as well as in like a browser sense in other types of media. Have you, you said you controlled for a lot of factors. Has there been a, an examination of types of behavior by age group? You know, do, do older users tend to do one thing and younger users tend to do another? I mean, for our study, we just like control for that. But I know there are studies that suggest that uh, older people are more susceptible to sharing misinformation. That wasn't like, a, that wasn't the main uh, outcome for our research. But there are studies that like older people or like uh, that are more susceptible to sharing these kind of content. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I know we, we touched a little bit on thinking through what the long-term impact of behavior could be and a little bit about education, but what is the ultimate goal of your research? And do you share these findings or interventions that have worked with the social media platforms? Sure, certainly. Like we are in discussion with different social media platforms trying to implement some of these uh, intervention with them. So let's see how that goes. But still there's like a couple of other steps in our research, which is like, I talk about these interventions, but how you wanna like scale them up at the size of like a social media. And there's like still uh, many questions, like, like who should I like deliver this kind of intervention to? Now, if you don't want to like inter uh, deliver all these kind of intervention to every single person on the network. So that's actually a research question that's like, who should I targeting for this intervention? That is like, A, what are the individual characteristics? Like you mentioned, should I like deliver these kind of interventions to older people or younger people or those who are like more likely to rely on their intuition or versus those who rely more often on their analytical thinking? or all other characteristics of the users. And then another question that I just mentioned about uh, mentioned is that where in the network we should like deliver these kind of interventions. Should I like mm. target people who are, for whom the, uh, the, the intervention is most effective or should I target people for whom the intervention is less effective but they have like so many followers and if that affect their behavior and improve their uh, decision-making and sharing content, we have like large number of users being affected uh, and like being like less exposed to these kind of like low quality content. Another question that I just talked about is that at what interval we should be delivering mm -hmm. the intervention to the same person. If I receive this kind of behavioral intervention every single day, I may just like ignore it going down. If I don't receive this kind of intervention after a while, my behavior will get back to the uh, will get back to the same place that it was in the beginning before receiving the intervention, which is kind of like a question of dynamic treatment regime 
that is like at what interval you want to like uh, deliver these kind of interventions. So I guess like we found these kind of interventions to be more effective in terms of like accuracy nudges. We tested them in the field, but next step is just like looking at how we can scale them up. At the same time, we are working with social media platforms to see how we can implement them at large scale. Fascinating. You know, it's it's not unlike security awareness training, right? If you make your employees watch the phishing video every day, then they just sort of tune it out. But if you don't do it enough, then you the resilience of the larger organization becomes an issue. Um, fascinating. Um, so I do, I want to take the remaining time that we have um, just to discuss what else are you working on? You know, this intersection of psychology and sort of computational systems could be very broad. Just curious as to what other systems you might be looking at or even other questions that you're trying to answer. So a couple of other areas that I'm interested in and I've been working on, one is in terms of like preferential social tie formation and how that relates to uh, political partisanship. There is like, again, another example like misinformation. There's large number of studies uh, within psychology and political science looking at the effect of co-partisanship on so professional social, social tie formation. But most of these studies are done in lab settings and mm -hmm. online, like online survey experiments. There is another area of research within computer science where people look at the up, like mainly focusing on observational studies showing that there is a high correlation in terms of uh, like, like political partisanship and, and the structure of echo chambers. So what I'm working on in another context is to look at the causal impact of co-partisanship and professional social tie formation on uh, social media, which is like an environment, you know, in, in real world context, you cannot introduce people to each other and measure mm -hmm. like how likely they would be making friends based on the partisanship of the two parties. Whereas in social media, you can do that. So in a recent study, we create two sets of accounts instead of like uh, democratic account, another one Republican account. And we follow people with different ideology on Twitter. We found a strong causal uh, impact of partisanship in terms of like professional social tie formation. So on Twitter, mm -hmm. we followed like around 800 people and we found that co-partisans are three times more likely to follow back an account with similar ideology as opposed with an account with it uh, from the opposing party. Everything being equal, only the biographic and the profile picture of the account that plays this like significant role. Mm -hmm. Another project that I just started working on is looking at racial discrimination on like professional social networks like LinkedIn. That is like creating different set of accounts with different like racial identities. We found unfortunately a significant and substantial effect of uh, you know, an account race and gender in terms of like other people accepting their request to make a connection on LinkedIn. Interesting. Which, which is like very unfortunate. And we are like, I mean, that's like a very early results, 
and we are like thinking about how what kind of interventions could help here to kind of like uh, you know get rid of this kind of intervention professional social networks for instance. So that's some something that I'm planning to work in the next couple of months in uh, particular like similar ideas about like taking these kind of like psychological impact uh, psychological studies and theories as well as like real world social media platforms. Yeah, that seems like a digital mirror of what we've discovered in best practices for hiring, right, is to do uh, blind resumes because, you know, they have found whether it's just the name, if it's easily identifiable for a quote unquote race or gender, that it has an impact. So it makes sense that it sort of has a visual corollary. Um, that's very unfortunate. Um, is this the reason why this research is done in the Sloan School of Management? I'm trying to, I love that it's attached to business, but is there kind of a larger mission here to house the research in the context of a business environment or business decision-making? Yeah, I guess there are two things. I mean, I just, the very reason for me is like a multidisciplinary environment in Sloan mm -hmm. that you can like having people from like CS background, behavioral background, econ background, uh, so like helps a lot uh, with like conducting this kind of research. And it's also the same time is a very, very important part of like almost any enterprise platforms, like, you know, uh, for example, you know, finding jobs or like quality of content on mm -hmm. social media. And I believe that at the same time that social media platforms can like promote like ads or like different contents in order to run their business with very small changes, they can also help us be more discerning what we share and help improve the quality of content we as a society have the access to. So I think like, to my understanding, these kind of research, not only like can enjoy, I mean, can, can sorry, can take benefit from the interdisciplinary environment at the business school, also can help a lot with the business environment in terms of like digital social media platforms to not only pay attention to the monetary value of like, you know, uh, different like ads, uh, delivering ads mm -hmm. and things like that, but also like the other side of uh, this world, helping like improving quality of content, helping get up rid of like racial discrimination or like different kind of discrimination of these kind of like platforms as well. So it was like kind of a like complementary to like building an economic platform in order to like optimize profit. And the same time, like small changes, we help a lot uh, uh, to, to our society in terms of like the quality of content we have the access to. Absolutely. So um, I think final question here, and I'm slightly nervous to ask because I think it's pretty speculative and I respect the academic rigor, but in some ways it feels like a chicken or the egg problem, right? Is in terms of like the LinkedIn discrimination or the pro-social ties um, in the partisanship study, that causal link, is it that social media has changed our psychology? It's the way we sort of interface with a lot of information. Is it changing the way we interact in the real world or is it compounding psychologies and behaviors that you know are latent or just endemic to the the human mind yeah you know. i guess it's both in like in many 
uh, context, it could be like very similar. Kind of social media is kind of like a mirror of real world interactions. Mm -hmm. That is like particularly in the context of this polarization stuff. That is like you know polarization has been existing in the U.S. for a while, and like you can see the similar impact, similar effect within social media platforms. That is like there is high polarization going on social media. Now it could be different because it interacts a lot with the algorithm. You want to make sure that when you're building an algorithm for social media, that doesn't amplify some form of polarization that already exists in our society. Absolutely. But another context is more kind of like the design of social media by its own. That is like, for example, in the context of misinformation, that is like similar content like we talked about earlier in our conversation that may people may not share it like if they read on a book or like some some other environment mm -hmm. that people are more attentive. But these kind of like decisions kind of like affected by social media platform on in general, mainly because like we are kind of like distracted of where we are sharing content on social media. You know, later in the evening, we're just like playing with our phone, <laughs> going to the newsfeed, we find like something interesting, we're gonna share it anyway. But I think that's kind of like a slightly different, uh, could be different if we wanna share the similar content in other environment that we like by default, are we, we are more attentive uh, in our decision-making, I guess. Oh, that's a good point. Well, um, Professor Mosley, we are cognizant of the time and, and you're taking it out to talk with us. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been very fascinating. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for Absolutely. Sharing. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast is a production of Safeguard Cyber. It is produced by us, George Comedy and Ashley Stone. Theme music is by Matias Safaletti. Sound design and production by Kai Crow Getty. If you are listening to this, then you probably know how to subscribe to a podcast. Go ahead and subscribe. And we'd love to hear from you if you've got a comment or a rating. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.